0: bright sunny day in cleveland it's good to see all the sunshine we're getting people are remarking on we're seeing it more often this winter than in the past i think there might be a story there (laughs) it's today in ohio the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and the plane dealer i'm chris quinn here with laura johnston Layla tassi and lisa garvin and we got a bunch of good stories to talk about today i hope you had a good weekend
1: lots of sunshine
0: indeed let's begin It looks like we're all going to get some money back from First Energy because of its reprehensible bribe-paying role in corrupt House Bill 6. Coming up on two years since the scandal became public, we now know our money was illegally used in the scheme. Layla, how did we find this out and how much cash are we talking about?
2: So we learned this. From an audit released Friday from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, they found that the $71 million in House bill lobbying expenses led First Energy to improperly raise prices on customers and attempt to conceal the nature and purpose of these payments from the public. Utilities can't use money collected from ratepayers to pay for lobbying. So they're giving First Energy two months to come up with a plan to issue customer refunds with interest. It's important to note, so that only about 1.5 million of the 71 million came from ratepayers. But this audit gives us the most detailed look yet at the money that First Energy was pouring into dark money lobbying efforts to pass HB6. It, it flags a total of more than $133 million in spending, though not all of that money was directly tied to HB6. Interestingly, the audit also looks into nearly $29 million given to 16 entities believed to be associated with Cleveland businessman Tony George. It, the audit doesn't mention him by name, and George kind of brushed off the association when, when Cleveland.com asked him about it. But First Energy has already agreed to refund $9.6 of that money, according to the audit. And First Energy also estimated it would issue 185000 in refunds in connection with an additional $22.8 paid to two companies controlled by Sam Randazzo, mm-hmm. the former chair of the Public Utilities Commission of, of Ohio, who First Energy has admitted to bribing. Uh, of the money paid to Randazzo, the audit says $20.9 was paid by First Energy utility and transmission subsidiaries, which resulted in, in many customers paying higher rates, the remaining 2 million or so was covered by first energy solutions so lots of great detail in, the, in well, this audit
0: the the thing that's striking is for the for the longest time first energy claimed that that we didn't raise prices to pay for our corruption mm-hmm. and we didn't use ratepayer money in ways that are not appropriate but they did they they scammed us they used our money for illegal purposes. And, they've, you know, almost two years later, we're finding out about it. The other striking thing in the audit is it says it used some money from First Energy sister companies in other states. Mm-hmm. So does that create a whole new set of investigations exactly. in the other states? Yeah, I thought Are that was so very eye-opening, too.
2: Away? Yeah, right,
0: right. What, what now? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's amazing how just wanton their corruption was. It it, it makes you wonder what you don't know. I mean, if you're this blatant about breaking all the rules to bribe your way into billions, what else did they do that we don't know about? This really is a company you wonder if the best thing that could happen is if you broke it apart, Mm -hmm. sold it to somebody else, and started over. Can they ever change a culture that corrupt?
2: Right. Right. That's a great question. But this audit definitely peels back some more layers of the onion and it's just startling.
0: <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Should a Lake County engineer's concerns about commuting to the Lake Erie Islands really be a factor in the decision on developing the Cleveland lakefront according to the hazlem Plan? Lisa, this was a, a piece of Steve Litt's story over the weekend that was about the bigger issues of traffic disruption the lakefront plant could have. But I was struck that one of the voting members of the board that looks at this stuff was looking at it from his personal journey from Lake County to the island.
3: Yes, but he does bring up an interesting point. Um, James Gills is a Lake County engineer, and he's a member of the Nawaka board. And during the uh, January 28th meeting, he said, look, I am opposed to rerouting State Route 2 onto downtown streets to get over the Main Avenue bridge. He feels like the resulting gridlock and congestion could make people just bypass downtown entirely rather than fighting that gridlock, and this is his personal experience, and he said as much. He said, you know, during the summers, on the weekends, he drives from Lake County to the Bass Islands, and, uh, you know, he stops at Westside Market sometimes to get food on his way there, and he says, I see gridlock on Fridays at 5 o'clock anyway. If you're going to force shoreway traffic onto Lakeside Avenue to get over the main avenue bridge, that's just going to make it worse. So, Personally, I think he has a point, but there's a delicate balance between regional traffic flow and lakefront access. Where is that tipping point? Where's the balance point? We really don't know. So I think it's a good point to bring up. And he says he's opposed to rerouting. This is the Haslam plan. This takes the 15-acre mall, extends it over the shoreway and over the railroad tracks to, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the North Coast Harbor. But um again, this is this is where the shoreway rides to go over the Main Avenue Bridge. So the plan is to take out that part of the bridge, reroute traffic, get them off at West 3rd Street, go down Lakeside to get over the Main Avenue Bridge. So I think it's an interesting point to bring up.
0: I get I, My question, though, is... How long do we have to keep paying for terrible decision-making in the past? The morons who put the interstate next to the lakefront destroyed our access to the lakefront. That was just a bad idea that should never have happened. It should have been thought out better, and we pay for that even now. The way that the interstate ran through the city, destroyed neighborhoods, separated neighborhoods from each other that had been unified and together causing irreparable damage. This was all bad ideas back when these decisions were made. So is the answer maintain them? Let's keep doing it the wrong way. Or should we be much more thoughtful about looking to the future? Doesn't everybody think we ought to have genuine access to the lakefront and real lakefront development like they have in cities that have lakefronts
1: I would a hundred percent I mean and the thing is the Noaka plan they asked the the city of Cleveland to go back and see if they could make the the um land bridge like the original idea so that they didn't have to reroute traffic so i don't think that it's a one or the other like i think there's probably a compromise here somewhere but just because robert moses thought you know like that that school of design in the 50s was that you should have these beautiful prominent boulevards to drive next to a lake doesn't mean that that is a good way to go for the rest of time i mean and we have i-90 just drive on i-90 i mean well, and then you can get well, off at two in lorraine county or well,
0: let's rethink the whole way people commute in and out of the city have have a much bigger view then just say, well, if this project does that, it's gonna cut off Main and Avenue Bridge. That's inconvenient for me and I don't wanna do right. it.
1: And, and to look at like Fridays at five, because that's when you wanna go on vacation. Like, first of all, COVID has completely changed the way we work. I don't even know if there's gridlock at five, anymore, because I'm not downtown.
0: Although I was on Opportunity or rush hour this morning, and I could tell you there was, it was pretty thick. <laughs> yeah,
3: but and I, I just... Honestly, though, well, the, I mean, there's that Green Ribbon Coalition plan that jogs this land right. bridge to the east, so they don't have to take out the shoreway. So, I mean, and that's maybe an option they want to consider. And there's another option, I guess, that they didn't really mention. So there are other options here. So, I mean, but... Do you really want to restrict traffic access to downtown? I I just don't know. I
0: no, I just what but what are the other possible solutions? Are there things you could do to the other bridges over the river, making them one way in each direction? I mean, when is the last time somebody took a holistic approach to commuting in and out of Cleveland to see what the best way to do this is? I, I just would hate to have us hit the brakes on finally envisioning a lakefront, because of this, I mean, we—it's like okay, that's a problem. It's a concern. How do you fix it? Which it sounds like they're—they're they're going to look at that. I just when you see one guy saying, "Well, this is going to get in my way," going on right, my and he's trip. not
1: talking about access to downtown. He's ac- talking about access through downtown. That's very different.
0: Yeah, it, it was a disappointing perspective to see. Although Lisa, your point is taken. The discussion needs to be had. Mm -hmm. We can't make it impossible to get in and out of the city. It just, this seemed like it was putting the brakes on an idea before it even gets going. You're listening to Today in Ohio what did we learn from northeast ohio teachers when we sought their perspective on two years of the coronavirus laura as we've mentioned before we did a similar set of stories based on healthcare workers over the last two years describing the trauma they go through seeing people die needlessly this was an idea it was your idea to find out what is it like for teachers two years into the pandemic
1: right and so Alexis Oatman did the story, and she had a call out for teachers. She heard from about 15 of them across the region in all sorts of different grades in different areas. And what they said is they're exhausted. This is the third school year interrupted by the pandemic. If you remember the first spring, everybody went remote and suddenly teachers had to learn how to use online programs and teach remotely. The next year was switching all the time. There's hybrid, remote, and in-school learning. And they had to catch kids up from what they missed. And then this year has been juggling with a lot of COVID absences and quarantines, plus dealing with the long term stress of the pandemic and all of these emotional challenges that kids are grappling with. And it has caused some really difficult behaviors. I don't know if you remember back in the fall, I believe it was Bedford. They went remote because of all the fights that kids were having in school with each other and with the teachers. It's been an issue in Akron public schools. And it's just that One teacher said, what I've noticed is that children in the building seem feral, Mm -hmm. not all of them, but they have lost the ability to know how to manage themselves with peers and adults. So not only are you trying to educate these kids and catch them up on everything they've learned while they were remote, but they are just more difficult than they were. Plus with all the quarantines and absences they're dealing with right now, it's hard to find any other help. They don't have substitutes and they're doing things like getting kids on and off the bus or working in the cafeteria. So they don't even have any break times to kind of just regroup or plan.
0: Yeah, it was, it was nice to get that. Everybody sees the teachers in, in action. Lots of kids are going to school. There's, there's a huge experience here. It's always nice to hear kind of the the first person perspective of what it's really like to be there and i got a couple of comments from readers basically saying oh stop stop whining everybody's dealing with the pandemic but and i you know full disclosure my wife's a teacher so i have sympathy here but but they are the ones that are that are dealing with these children they are the ones that are are likely being exposed to covid and uh, and so it was good to get their perspective out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's well taken. There are a lot of of occupations that have been put into really difficult times during COVID. Obviously, healthcare workers, frontline workers, and you know, restaurant workers, and people working in stores—they are all dealing probably with way crabbier customers and and staffing shortages, and everybody's having a tough time. But I feel like we talk so much about the schools. We look at the COVID cases every week. We talk about educational standards. We have laws made about about schools and what these kids should be learning and we don't often hear from the perspective so it is nice to hear them say how they're struggling and i think most people go into teaching because they really want to help kids i mean you don't go into teaching because you want to be rich so i I, I think we we owe them that
2: you know i i just want to chime in here i feel like the the psychological toll of the pandemic on our kids cannot be underestimated Mm. And, and we and don't even know what it I know. Is. And it's like you see it in your own kids, right? The feral children thing really hits a chord because it's mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, at home, it's so much harder to I mean, you know, your kids act differently with with you than they do when they're actually in public expected to behave like normal human beings. Right. But, <laughs> yes, but it's I like, tell myself yeah, I mean, and, and teachers spend more time with kids with with our kids than probably we do in some cases. Mm-hmm. And they have to deal with the fallout from all of the the traumas of, of living through the, these times. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for, for their presence in our kids' lives and their influence.
0: Check out the story on Cleveland.com. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Travel writer Susan Glaser went deep on the possible ramifications of a SeaWorld takeover of Cedar Fair, including Cedar Point. One involves the Muppets and Snoopy. Layla, we <laughs> talked about this last week, but this is a lot more information than we had at our fingertips. Yeah.
2: You know, as Susan points out, who knows whether Cedar Fair is going to accept SeaWorld's unsolicited bid, which was reported to be $3.4 billion. I mean, after all, it wasn't that long ago that Cedar Fair rejected an even higher bid from Six Flags. but But that offer was pre-pandemic, and since then you know, the amusement park industry has seen its ups and downs. Cedar Point, of course, eventually rebounded and they recorded some some record profits in 2021. So let's presume the sale goes through. What could change at Cedar Point? Susan spoke to Robert Niles, who's the editor of the industry publication Theme Park Insider, and he speculated that a new company might swap out intellectual property at the park's for instance, they might lose the Peanuts characters and in favor of Sesame Street, which is a presence at SeaWorld, you know, parks. And he wondered if a new larger company might seek to get rid of Cedar Fair's smaller properties and whether the the debt that SeaWorld would incur by buying this, uh, by you know, through this acquisition might limit future investments. Uh, he noted that Cedar Fair parks, which are located in nine states and Ontario, would bring some some geographic breadth to SeaWorld, which is really focused on the East and West coasts. coast. coast. And, and he said that, um, you know, buying Cedar Fair, Cedar Fair would allow SeaWorld to kind of, you know, play down the focus on the marine animals, which has been really under under you know on the hot seat over the years and the subject of a pretty damning documentary a while back so um you know she says susan says that cedar fair will host its year-end earnings call with analysts on february 16th so we might learn more about where they stand you know with this deal but uh but yeah interesting i mean the peanuts characters have been a part of c or cedar point for you know as long as i can remember um it would be interesting to see how that would play out with the kids i mean do, Laura, do your kids even even
1: recognize Peanuts characters in the world? I feel like yeah, you, probably yeah. only from Cedar Point, right? Because you have yeah. Camp Snoopy and you have the other Snoopy area, but right. No, I don't even think they've ever seen a Charlie Brown special. Really?
2: Sorry. I mean, well, at least there's you know the holidays, the Charlie Charlie Brown specials, but I think Sesame Street does does play better with kids with yeah,
1: the
0: kids. No, yeah, it does. I just you know <laughs> I'm going back, but when I was a camp counselor in Southern New Jersey, we used to drag the Kids to Sesame place every summer. And I can't even remember it. It was so unremarkable. I'd never thought of no, really? it as a theme park. It felt like one of those, you know, little day trips where you went around. I I had no idea SeaWorld had bought it in the intervening years. But but Sesame Street is ubiquitous, right? Your kids watched it when they were little.
2: I mean, my toddler loves Sesame Street.
1: <laughs> right. No, my kids really were never that into Sesame Street. It was like, I don't know that they had an with with working full time and then being a daycare like and then going to bed so early. I don't think they ever watched a full hour of Sesame really? Street. Man, but there are grandson. a lot of Jim Henson properties like Dinosaur Train that they were huge fans of. Peanuts, though, is and, a and little Belly.
2: antiquated. I mean, even really even, antiquated. Even I don't the think specials that you force your kid it to is. watch, at, you know, oh, you know, it's just like nostalgia to put it on at Christmas with, time yeah, at Christmas or whatever. Street. But it's like. You know, so boring. So, <laughs>
0: and then Snoopy flying around the sky in his doghouse. Oh, so, so boring. Yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Despite all the rhetoric and silliness we've seen from people on the far right fringes of the Republican Party in Ohio, people like Jim Renacci, does it appear that Governor Mike DeWine has a pretty easy path to winning his primary for reelection? Lisa, we took a deeper dive on this, and it does look like Mike DeWine has a pretty easy path, doesn't it? Well, and we wouldn't have said this a couple of months ago
3: because the party was rebelling against him and we weren't even sure that they were going to confer their endorsement to Mike DeWine. But yeah, he's he's coasting on easy street. There's no serious competition. I mean, Jim Renacy's maybe the closest of the, of the GOP candidates, the former congressman. Um, Joe Blystone, a Columbus farmer, is the other, and then former state representative Ron Hood. None of them have drawn any united support from any of DeWine's detractors, which there still are some. There's the likely endorsement that DeWine will get from the Ohio GOP that may happen as soon as today, I think. He also has a campaign war chest of over $9 million, and he's got some big accomplishments he can tick off. Intel, the Peloton factory, and if you want to count the Lordstown electric vehicle plant, you can count that as well. But the other, the challenges he faces, there's still a lot of lingering resentment over his COVID restriction policies. He has backed away from those and distanced himself and kind of delegated those mandates to people other than him. Um, Trump if Trump endorses one of his opponents, that could be a huge challenge to him. And then, of course, and Renacy's already using this tactic, they're going to try and pin House Bill 6 on DeWine and, and that House Bill 6 fallout and his connections to First Energy is probably the most serious challenge he faces at this point.
0: The the idea that Jim Renacci is any kind of threat is kind of silly because his campaign consists of putting out ridiculous press releases and he tried to use a page from the Josh Mandel handbook playbook when our story about this came out he attacked the reporter by name trying to get into a duel and it's like we're not you know we're not going to do that you're not a serious candidate the in the dem, once it gets to the November race I do think there'll be a more interesting battle if the democrats use the ammunition they have well because they will be well funded and and they might have a sane campaign unlike what's running against him now but it's a good story check it out on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio how does senator sherrod brown of ohio want to mark black history month with a long-term plan for the nation's black cemeteries laura this was one of the first stories in our our series running this month to mark black history month. What did it say?
1: Yeah. So Sherrod Brown is working to preserve African-American cemeteries and their artifacts. And he wants to reintroduce this bipartisan legislation he's tried to pass for several years that would direct the National Park Service to create a voluntary national database of historic African-American burial grounds and provide grant opportunities and technical assistance to for people to research, identify, survey, and preserve them. There are dozens of African-American cemeteries in Ohio alone, thousands around the nation. Three are located on the National Register of Historic Places in Ohio, but there could be a lot more. And the problem is there's not great records. And maybe that's on purpose because shared put it, Sherrod Brown put it this way, that the desire to forget moments that are difficult has been part of the challenge of remembering African-American history. People do not like to talk about bad things in the past. And when you talk about slavery and this country's role in it, it's not an upbeat chipper topic that people are eager to, you know, put on in, in museums. So, but I think it's really great that we're talking about it. And heritage Ohio director Joyce Barrett said that the, the data is incomplete, but the historic preservation office is working on several efforts to correct that.
0: Okay. You're listening to today in Ohio. Is there a chance that we won't have need for coronavirus masks this summer Layla, I give this question to you because yeah. you are the least of our risk taking. You, That's I think, right. wear a mask more frequently than anybody I know. So, is it possible that you won't wear one this summer?
2: Oh, so you're asking me personally? Well, yeah, you
0: personally, <laughs> as a representative. Me personally, of a
2: there's no way I won't wear one this summer. But, according <laughs> to the experts, maybe there's a chance that that we might get to the point where, uh, you know, so. <laughs> this is a very loaded question for me. <laughs> all right. so so uh, there was a media briefing during which the ODH director, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, said that at some point, the hospitalizations and transmission rates will be low enough that the benefit of a mask doesn't outweigh the inconvenience. But, for right now, I mean the rates of new covid cases and they're they're still pretty high across the state, so masks are still recommended even for the vaccinated so it's a it's a real question mark, and we'll have to see i mean Chris, you've had your theories about. Whether Omicron has burned through the population at such a rate that now we're really in, you know, headed into a period of steep decline, um, but you know, meanwhile, several school districts across Ohio have been lifting mask mandates and st- while still encouraging their use. You know, Rocky River, North Olmstead are the two that we highlighted in our story. I just don't get that. I mean, community transmission is still so high, and I believe most districts have set metrics that have to be met before they just change masking policy. So do we just abandon those thresholds because we're tired of masks? That seems so arbitrary. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. What are, your, but, what are you guys' thoughts on look, that?
0: Look, you're right. Right now, it's it, the numbers are still high, although they're way down. They are dropping very quickly. It is appearing that Omicron was a massive Flash fire got lots of people sick and a lot, you know, the, the death numbers continue to be high, but we are on the downside. And so within a few weeks, we could be at the threshold that Hoff is talking about where you have a pretty low chance of getting it. And look, in the warmer weather, we know that it doesn't spread as quickly. It would be nice if we could wander around at least for a few weeks this summer without, (laughs) oh, dude, I bring my mask. I still haven't gotten that into my DNA. I almost always have to go back in the house to get Oh, really? It's like the
1: first question I ask my kids when we get in the car. Do you have your mask? (laughs) And they're finally, at this point... They do have their mask, but my district's one of the ones that dropped it. And it was because of pressure from parents, you know, emailing the superintendent and they have five board members and three of them thought, yeah, if you want your kid to get vaccinated, then get vaccinated. My kids are still wearing a mask. They tell me they're wearing masks. They say about half the kids in their class are not. And they're in the intermediate school, third to fifth grade. So I'm actually surprised by that. The good news is that kids, little kids, five and under might be able to get vaccinated by yeah by March, right? So that's good news. But Layla, it's funny, because middle of last summer, I mean, my kids weren't vaccinated, but I was, and the rates were way down. I was not wearing a mask for probably a month.
2: Wow.
0: <laughs> well, when I stopped wearing a mask last May, I got really sick. So there's also that. I was, had nothing to do with COVID. It's just suddenly you're bombarded with germs. I don't know, we'll see. I I do wonder if we're we're finally tailing out of this thing and life can return to normal. I'm going to be optimistic. And Although the so.
1: idea about return to normal makes it sound like it goes back to the way it is and where it was and I don't I think it's got to be a new normal. I don't Yeah.
0: Yeah, new normal without masks and without being afraid of meeting people at every juncture. You're listening to today in Ohio. Lisa, you get the question that really shows people putting party against ahead <laughs> of people. Did any Ohio members of Congress vote against a bill to provide incentives to microchip makers for building factories in the United States like, duh, Intel is doing near Columbus? I can't imagine that any member of the Ohio delegation would do anything in any way to hamper the effort to bring that factory here. But apparently some did. Well,
3: all Ohio Republicans in Congress voted against the America Competes Act. It was authored by the Dems, which gives you a clue. It's a $52 billion incentive package to locate chip production in the U.S. And uh, in, among the GOP Congressman that voted against it was Troy Balderson of Zanesville, whose area will be extremely impacted by the Intel chip factory going into New Albany. But it seems that their their opposition focuses on China. They feel like we're not holding China, you know, accountable enough. Some of this money, this $52 billion, $8 billion is going to the UN Green Climate Fund. And Balderson says, well, we should hold China accountable for their emissions and their trade practices. Uh, Bob Lotta of Bowling Green says, well, the bill falls short in addressing supply chain issues and cheating by the Chinese. Uh, Bob Gibbs says, well, it encourages espionage and military aggression from the Chinese, and it's funneling money to Democratic interest groups. That's a good one. But on the Democratic side, they all voted for it. Sherrod Brown is a opposed, said, the GOP opposes it because it's a, quote, Joe Biden initiative and that, you know, they're in cahoots with corporations that are outsourcing jobs to China. Tim Ryans is stunned by the rhetoric, Rick, and he says, you know, why are they focusing on the culture roars and not that China has long term plans and is going to clean our clocks in about 10 years? So, yeah, Ugh. cutting off your nose. But, to spite this, your but face. every
0: Right. Everybody has said, everybody has said getting the Intel factory in Ohio could be the game changer for the whole state economy. We finally get in on the higher tech side of life instead of always having the old manufacturing. It makes no sense for any Ohio congressman not to support the subsidies needed to do that. And it really does demonstrate that we're not voting on what's best for the people of Ohio it's really voting to to carry on the party rhetoric, and we don't work together and get things done. There there is no legitimate excuse here. This is pure party partisan nonsense, and it's kind of sad. It, it,
3: it, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, like you said, this is the biggest thing to happen to the Buckeye State in years, and you're just going to get your little you know win, own the libs thing in on a on on legislation. To ugh, it's crazy.
0: How does Balderson defend that in an election, you know, running against an opponent that's saying you fought pr- this, the necessary subsidies to make this thing happen that is going to boost the economy of the area you represent? How do you even begin to justify that? You know, well, I, I, I was going to help China. I'm not going to help China. It just right. sounds like you're, you're, you know, a good opponent ought to be able to use that to to deal with it. You're listening to today in Ohio. We're going to leave it there. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're going to be talking about how Cleveland City Council chose to make a limit of 10 for the release of balloons into the sky.